Welcome to the Mike Litton Experience Podcast. Mike has over 31 years experience in real estate, finance, and investing. He's passionate about being a father, a teacher, a realtor, an investor, and a leader. Everyone has a story, and our passion is to help them tell it. And now, introducing the host of the Mike Litton Experience, Mike Litton. So what is Mike Time? Mike Time is a set of short stories that have happened throughout my lifetime, experiences of mine throughout my lifetime, that have taught me lessons that I hope will be of value to you. So what can you expect from the Mike Litton Experience? You can expect stories that will inspire, motivate, deliver advice that sharpens your focus, as well as providing expert information regarding real estate, finance, and market conditions. Dane White, Mayor of Escondido. Yes, sir. Thanks for doing this, man. Absolutely. It's great to have you on the Mike Litton Experience. So we just talked a minute ago about kind of what we do. We believe that everybody has a story, and and we believe, and our passion is to help them tell it. And the idea behind it is your story is unique, just like everybody else's is, and there are going to be people out there that are going to hear your story, and they're going to be inspired and motivated, and that's what we're all about. We're all about inspiring and motivating people, and it doesn't matter whether they're a parent, whether they're the mayor of Escondido, whether the president of the United States, it doesn't matter. There's something about your story people will connect with and it'll inspire and motivate them. So if, with your permission, what we're going to do is we're going to start with the very beginning. Where were you born? I was born right here in Escondido. Well, that's actually the one piece of this whole puzzle that's missing. I wasn't born at Palomar Hospital in Escondido. Okay. I was actually born in Poway at Palmerado. Okay. Um, but I'm from Escondido. I'm okay. fifth generation. Family moved here in the late 1800s. Oh, that's cool. And uh, most of us are still here. My mom my mom moved out to Lake Elsinore a while back, and then during COVID, I have uh, two siblings that couldn't take the COVID restrictions anymore and moved to South Carolina. Yeah. But other than that, virtually everybody's still here. That's wild. So did you So you grew up in Escondido? For the most part. Okay. I did, yeah. Um, went to private school, Light and Life Christian School here in town, up until seventh grade, and then uh, went to the public school system. Escondido High School my freshman year. Okay. Uh, I was there for two weeks of my sophomore year before I was suspended for stealing Principal Rich Watkins' golf cart. Oh, my gosh. Um, he suspended me, and then at the end of my suspension, my parents actually sent me to a boarding school out in Stockton, Missouri. Wow. I was there for 19 months, ran away, made it to Utah, graduated in a town of 1,000 people in Utah, and then uh, I came back to Escondido right around my 21st birthday. So what what town in Utah? Penguich. Okay. Never heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> it's very small. Most people have it. <laughs> <laughs> That's wild, man. My, uh, my graduating class had like 22 kids in it. Okay. And uh, that the, the most, I think, the thing that stands out to me most from that time is my first day of high school. The principal got on the intercom and said, students, if you're going to bring your guns to school, they need to be locked in a gun rack. And I thought... There's an interesting... Definitely not San Diego. Yeah, there's an interesting take up. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, definitely not California or San Diego. My goodness. So so you so you graduate high school in... Give me the name again. Penguich. right? Graduate high school in Penguich and then come back to, to Escondido. Yeah, I was actually... So, graduated from high school when I was 17. I was arrested a short time after that, sent to juvenile hall... And then from juvenile hall was placed in a foster home and then stayed in a foster home till I was, you know, almost 19. 
and from then to uh, 21, basically, uh, in and out of trouble, homelessness, going back and forth from Cedar City to Escondido, okay. couch surfing, sleeping wherever I could find a spot for a couple of years. And then when I came back here, um, that's when I, I had ultimately went to rehab, got my act together, and decided to stay. Okay. So so when, when you were growing up, who was the most influential person to you growing up? That's an interesting question. Most, in, You know, I hate to say it like this, but I, growing up, I really didn't have anybody that influenced me for good. That's okay. I didn't have any kind of a role model. Um, so it's hard for me to answer that question. I can tell you in my, my adult life, uh, my father-in-law has definitely had one of the biggest influences on me. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's fair. Yeah. So, so you, so you graduate high school, you come back here, you sort of bounce back and forth, right? And then you end up, uh, end up permanently here. It sounds like. Yes. Right. And so when you were permanently here, you said something about you went. You were. I know that your story, and I love your story, by the way. Um, I know that part of your story is that you were actually homeless for a while and and had some drug, some substance abuse issues, that kind of thing, um, and then went to rehab. Was rehab here? Yeah. It, it was in Escondido, the North County Inland Regional Recovery Center. Okay. It was on the corner of Ash and Washington, where the 7-Eleven now okay. is. Okay. Uh, I think that used to be a City of Escondido utilities building that okay. was there. Okay. And I think they were leasing it to the... To MHS, so Mental center. Health Services, okay. Who, okay. who ran the program. Um, but yeah, it was a six-month outpatient program, so I'd go to work for part of the day, and then I'd head there afterwards and spend the rest of the day there every okay. day. Okay. So how did you come about going there? So what, what led up to that decision? Yeah, so about three, four, five months before I went in, I was living in Utah. I had gotten into trouble again. And this time the judge was like, you know, I've seen you in here enough times that you've got a problem and right. you need to go to rehab. So they, they told me to go find a six-month program. I had a certain number of days to check in. But to me, I wasn't ready and I didn't, to me, I, I didn't need help. So my thought process was I will just go back to California mm-hmm. and never come back to the state of Utah. And okay. Yeah. That'll uh, cure it. Yeah, <laughs> 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 yeah exactly. <laughs> So interesting thought process. That's okay. what I did. I was okay. like, all right, I'll yeah. just head back home, go back home, and then that New Year's Eve, I went to a party, ended up having one of the most memorable experiences of my life, getting home, knowing I clearly I've overdosed, being in the most horrendous stomach pains I'd ever been through, and um, ultimately realized at that point, I, there, there's a problem. I need yeah. to get help. And I Googled outpatient rehabs, and that was the first one to pop up, so... So the following week, I went in. So it kind of just it you kind of just hit rock bottom, I guess, as, as people sometimes call it. You know, I had been scraping the bottom for quite some time, and yeah. I think that was just that night. I realized if I, if I don't die tonight, I'm going to die soon. Right. So time to time to make a change. Yeah, okay. scared me. Yep, sounds like it. So so you end up going into rehab. Tell us about that. What what did you learn? What um, what came of that? You know, when I went into that, I didn't have any intentions of actually putting in the work. Okay. You know, I was kind of doing it because I was ordered to. I, I knew it would be good for me. 
I had that experience. I was willing to at least take the first step. But getting in there was interesting. It was interesting to sit there with, you know, 15 or 20 other people every day who are in a similar situation as you are and listen to all their stories. And you start to compare, you know, I don't have it as bad as that person. I've got it way worse than this person. Ultimately, along the way, though, I made the decision to take it serious. And it wasn't really anything that they taught me because they they weren't telling me anything that I didn't already know. But I think what really changed for me was three months into it, I quit smoking cigarettes, quit smoking weed, quit doing drugs, quit drinking. I didn't do anything. I didn't call any of my old buddies. Like I, I took it very serious. Three months into it, I'm sober, but I'm more miserable than I've ever been. Now I have no friends. Wow. Now I have no life. And at the time, because I was willing to get help, my mom was willing to let me uh, have a futon in her garage. And I remember coming home one day being like, look, I gave it my best shot mm-hmm. three months into this, and I'm no better off than I was. And she gave me some advice and said, you know, just pray about it and be specific about what you want and go from there. So that night I prayed and said something to the effect of, you know, I want to... Uh, there's a list of demands. Mm-hmm. I want new friends. I want friends that will ride bikes with me. I'm a big uh, motocross guy, was mm-hmm. back then anyways, uh, and big mountain bike guy. And then I wanted a new girlfriend. Okay. Within 30 days, I had everything I asked for, like to the T. Whoa. Uh, there's, there's more. There's to a the lesson st- here. There's more to the story. <laughs> um, but ultimately, I ended up in one of the Mormon churches in Escondido, and my, my second Sunday there, a young guy invited me over to his house for a, a Sunday afternoon movie party. Okay. And I get to his apartment, and it's covered in motocross posters. Oh, my gosh. And I'm like, this is like this is strange, you know? Kind of cool, though. This group of five, um, five men and women, we all became best friends instantly, and they introduced me to the woman who is now my wife. Wow. It was wild. But that like within thirty incredible. days, just everything I asked. One for. thing after another after another, the dominoes fell and it all came together. Yeah, and that's why you know that's why I talk about my father-in-law being the biggest influence. I knew him before I knew my wife for a okay. couple of months, and uh, he's the one that really took me under his wing and gave me a shot. You know that when I met him, I had nothing. I was in rehab and I had nothing yeah. besides debt and trouble. How'd you meet him? Yes, his daughter was at that movie party, and we got to talking about mountain biking, and she told her dad, you know, she had met me, and this guy wants to ride bikes, and he just started inviting me every Saturday. Really? Yeah. He'd come pick me up, gave me a mountain bike to use, and took me with him. That's amazing. Yeah. How cool is that? Okay, so you said that there's more to the story. Yeah. We're all about more to the story. (laughs) Yeah. I don't mind going into it. I didn't know how much time you had. No, we have all the time in the world. You're the one that has time constraints. (laughs) So with the Mormon church, you've seen the Mormon missionaries walking around. Yeah. Okay. They're not from here. Um, When you go on a mission, you're assigned to an area, and you don't know until about six weeks before you go out where you're going to go. Right. And you're only in each specific spot for six weeks to six months. And then you, you get transferred to another area. New missionaries come in, and the phone stays there. The phone is always in that area. But okay. in a year, you could see five new sets of missionaries. Wow. So the missionaries lived where an old friend of mine lived. So okay. a year before I, I went into the church, I'm at this apartment com- complex every day. And 
when I'd get done there, I'd smoke a cigarette next to my car in the parking lot, and every time these missionaries would walk up, and we got to talking, eventually gave them my information, and I blew them off a dozen times before I finally let them know, like, I'm not interested in joining your church. Right. And so dropped it, right? So fast forward a year later, here I am in bed praying, and the very next day I get a text message from the missionaries, and it says, hey, Dane, it's the missionaries. Do you want to meet up? And all I said was yes. We yeah. set the time, and new missionaries had no idea who I was. Yeah. They said, I asked them how they found me. They said that they said a prayer, and in an attempt to find new people to teach the gospel, they received inspiration to text every name in the phone that they didn't know, and I was the only one who responded. Interesting. Yeah. So... They invite me to church, and the way the Mormon church works is if you're 30 years or younger, yeah. 30, 18 to 30, and you're single, you don't go to church with the families. You go to church separately. Really? So you're with everybody who's your age and they're single. My and goodness, I didn't know that. Okay. That's where I met the guy that invited me over to his house. Right. Who then... Had the motocross posters everywhere, and yeah. Wow. It's That is such a cool story. Definitely divine intervention. Yeah. I don't know how anybody could ever deny that. Well, you can't write the script, right? And one of the things that we find when we do these interviews is there's a script that could not be written in nearly everybody's life. Um, no. It, it The series of events that took place there, you know, me being willing to get help, getting the help, deciding it's not for me, and then having... This family inserted into my life. Yeah, I mean, it's nothing short of divine intervention. Well, having your mom tell you to pray about it, right? That sort of started the ball rolling, and the prayer itself. Wow. To be specific, I was I was specific. That is really cool. Yeah, that is really cool. What a great story! Thanks for sharing. So, so you meet your wife, right? Or meet meet your well, she's. Yeah, not your wife yet, right? Yep. So you meet her, and you and she's amazing, by the way. Um, Thank you. You I meet agree. her, and and you you obviously start dating that kind of thing. Tell us about that. Keep in mind, I was friends with the family for several months because she was at BYU. Okay. And so, so you knew her dad. Yep. For a number of months. Okay. Correct. Okay. And I was best friends with her sister. Um, I was at their house, you know, every other day, to the point of, like, having my own key, wow. right? Had my own key, I'm there, and one day she says, oh, yeah, my, my sister's home from BYU. And I'm watching a movie uh, with her sister on the couch, and uh, in walks in Kelsey. Okay. She says, hi. I'm not kidding you. The second I saw her, I knew that's the girl I'm going to marry. Yeah. I knew it. And I started creeping into her life little by little. Yeah. I started talking to her online through Facebook Messenger and things and and eventually got the nerve to ask her out on a date. And I told her dad, like, I'm going to ask your daughter out on a date if that's cool with you. And he was thrilled and asked her out. She, I think it was like a couple of months before she had to go back to BYU. Okay. So we kind of started dating and then she's gone to right. finish her degree. And we stayed together Um you know, she finished college. She came back home in May or June of the following year, and we got to spend 
up until July together, and then I left for two years on my mission. Wow. And here's the crazy part, you know, we, at, to this point, the vast majority of our relationship has been long distance, except at least while she's in college, we can FaceTime and text yeah. and all those things. Right. When you're on a mission, your only form of communication back home is emails for an hour on Mondays and handwritten letters. So my wife and I communicated for two years through handwritten letters and emails, except she did sneak over to my mom's house on Mother's Day and on Christmas. You're allowed to call home. Right. And so she was there the couple of times I got to call home. Wow. Incredible. So where did you go on your mission? I was assigned to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Okay. Um, But the mission itself covered half of the state of Arkansas, half of the state of Missouri, half the state of... um, Oklahoma and a small portion of Kansas. Okay. So I was all over the place. So I'll bet that was a little bit of a culture shock from California. Sort of, kind of. At heart, I'm a cowboy. I love, I, I love that lifestyle. Yeah. So I fit right in immediately. That's cool. Yeah. It, and and here's the difference, though. The difference is just the the the, the part of the culture that's different is the way people interact with each other. Mm-hmm. In California, you don't really say hi to people walking down the street. You're kind of just in a hurry to get where you need to go and do what you need to do and then go home. Out there, man, that's the friendliest place in the whole world. They say hi to everybody. Yeah. Yeah, so I was born in Ponca City, Oklahoma. Oh, nice. And and lived there until I was 13. But I, I basically was my grandfather's shadow, my mom's dad. And he waved to everybody. He said hi to everybody. And so I kept asking him, do you know that person? Granddad, do you know that person? Do you right? And it wasn't it wasn't about knowing them. It was about being friendly. It was just about being an Oklahoman. You know, it yeah. was really interesting. It was uh, quite a way to grow up. So, yeah, that's pretty cool. So we used to go to Tulsa to drive to Tulsa to take my, send my dad off on his trips. And, you know, so we ended up at the, at the airport and then we'd drive back to, to Ponca City. So yeah. I would say that the real shock was the weather. Yeah. You know, because in Escondido. Yeah. And I'm not a stranger to snow. Utah gets cold. It gets snow. The difference out there, though, is, you know, you've got basically two weeks out of the year where it's what I would call reasonable living conditions. Right, right. The rest, it's, it's extreme. way too hot or way too cold. Exactly. And then you throw in thunderstorms and tornadoes and all that Humidity, kind of stuff. The whole yeah. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's quite a ride. It really is. It yeah. Is. It's, it's something. So I told Oklahoma, that's wild. So for two years... Then you come back here. Yeah. And what happens then? Um, came back home, I think within eight days I was engaged. Oh, cool. I was married six weeks later, I think. Uh, we ended up moving in with her grandmother who just needed, couldn't be by herself anymore, but gotcha. didn't want to put her somewhere. Yeah. So moved in with her. Uh, at the time, I'd taken a job building decks, uh, working for a decking contractor after that, went to a flooring contractor, um, and that's really what took off for me was flooring. I've been doing construction pretty much my entire life. For a time at the beginning of our marriage, I was working as a resident manager for a uh, um, like a sober living home, okay. taking care of a dozen people who are trying to recover from a drug and alcohol addiction. But eventually, um, you know, there's very little money in that, so took a job back into construction full time and stuck with that until this. Gotcha. So let's go back just for a second, if it's okay. So what was what was it? What was the number one thing you learned in the two years that you were on mission? You know, for me, 
there is without a doubt a God in heaven. Mm-hmm. Before then, I'm not sure I could have said that with the confidence that I can now. So for for two years, every day, I spent two hours studying the gospel, okay. scriptures, um, books that spiritual leaders had written, and the biggest thing that I learned or took away from that was my testimony in a God in heaven, his son Jesus Christ, and our purpose here on this life, on this okay. earth. So it was a good thing for you? Absolutely. That's yeah. cool. Absolutely. That's cool, man. So you come back, you get married, right? Go to work for a decking contractor, then you end up in flooring. What made you decide to go into flooring? You know, I was doing decks, and it was fine. It was good money. Um, I just knew it wasn't for me. Okay. And I was still looking for what it is I was supposed to be doing. I knew that, I've always known that there's more to life. And at that that time, I thought more money was what I was looking for. So that's ultimately what got me into flooring. And I'm really good at it. And there's a lot of money to be made. So it was like, it was just an easy transition. And also with those companies, the decking companies, I kind of worked my way up as far as I could go without owning the company. So there, there was really no more room to grow. Okay. So in flooring, were you selling? Yeah, doing sales and installations. Sales, okay. installations, and refinishing wood floors. Wow, so you were kind of a jack-of-all-trades kind of thing. Okay, okay. So what was it about flooring other than the money? What was it about flooring that you liked? That's pretty much it. it was the money. The was job money? sucks. Yeah, for a bit. Okay, I got <laughs> it you. Sucks. I got you know, I'm 33, 34, and my knees hurt and my back hurts. Yeah. Uh, and I attribute that to flooring. Yeah. So I was ju- I was looking to move up the ladder, I'd say. I got you. I got you. So you go into flooring, and then what after that? What? At the same time, um, looking for a way to get involved locally. Okay. And went to my father-in-law, the only resource I had to really figure out the best path forward. And he connected me with a gal who said there might be an opportunity to run for school board. Okay. Whatever. I'll take what I can get. And it just so happened that the the guy whose seat I claimed, he was going to retire after being there for a significant amount of time. So it was perfect timing. It's very, very difficult to beat an incumbent. Yeah. So myself and another young guy, I think I was 25 and he was like 23. Okay. Jumped in the race for school board. Okay. So... Talk about that for a second. So what? So you were looking to get involved, and you decide to run for for school board. And what was that like? What was the what was the campaign like? What was? <laughs> so funny. Looking back now, you wonder how anybody does it because it is, it's intimidating. Yeah. It's confusing. It's it's a commitment. So to campaign, it was like you know I had my father in law, excellent resource. And he connected me with the right individual. So you need you need people who will support you financially. Yeah. But you also need people who understand campaign strategy. Yeah. I agree with that. So I'm at a I you know, I announced my candidacy and as I was still in the process of trying to figure out how I'm actually going to do this. Right. Started going to one of the little political clubs here in Escondido, and this young guy, seventeen year old, comes up to me and he says I just got done interning for Marie Waldron. Uh, I just graduated from High Tech High. Mm-hmm. And uh, would you like some help with your campaign? And I was like, heck yeah. yeah. I don't have anybody else running the show. Right. Uh, let's do it. And he made me a website. He did 
a bunch of my literature. He told me when to knock doors, who to talk to, all those kinds of things. So we raised a couple thousand bucks and we won. Awesome. It's incredible. Awesome. Uh, he, he helped me put together the platform and, and all that, but yeah, he got me across the finish line. It was it was crazy. You know, I, I didn't know anything about education. Mm-hmm. Didn't really know anything about politics because I wasn't I wasn't political until then. Okay. You know, I think it, that's kind of when the flame started. Okay. Okay. So the flame gets started. You win. What happens? I loved that job. The school board job? I did, yeah. This high school district is amazing. Mm-hmm. I got to know some of the best teachers. You know, my, my wife is a high school special education teacher. And to be able to connect and relate with, with that group of people was great. And it, that was my opportunity to give back. I feel like we got a lot done. I was a major supporter of career technical education. Um, you know, I didn't go to college. I, I was accepted into BYU Idaho. I went for a couple of weeks and just I knew since I was a kid I wasn't going. I was just trying to do what society was telling me I had to do. Right. And after two weeks it was like, man, this sucks and right. I'm not doing this. This is not my thing. So to to take that energy and point it towards getting other kids who know they're not gonna go to college connected with the right career pathway is very, very fulfilling. Sounds like you were the perfect candidate. Yeah. You know, extent, I, from your life experience and everything that you had been, you had done. I think there's a whole lot more I could have done, but I, I think overall we did good. So you knew from being in construction and from being in flooring that there's a real there's a real lack of technical education out there. And then you get on the school board when you know when your camp when your campaign you get on the school board and you can then you you can be a lightning rod for that. That's pretty cool. As a school board member, you have a lot of power. Yeah. You ultimately get to decide where the resources go. Um, it's just up to your, up to that individual to figure out how to make that happen. Well, one of the things that I, I know, obviously, quite a bit about your story because, um, full disclosure, I did I did campaign for you for mayor. <laughs> um, so so and 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 gleefully so I had a great time doing it and I'm really glad you and I appreciate it. I'm super 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 happy you're sitting in this seat um, I researched you obviously because I was going to be I made several hundred phone calls as you know and um, and I knew that I'd have people that would ask me so who is who's Dane white what what, what? right and so I went back and looked at you know and read read your your record and one of the things that I that impressed me the most about you, your story is inspiring, unbelievably inspiring in terms of where you've come from and, and what how you sort of, I mean, I know you had help, but you picked yourself up by your bootstraps and made a success out of your life when you really were in some pretty dark places and were pretty, pretty dark times. The thing that I really enjoyed in addition to that was the fact that you had an opportunity to reach across the aisle. You could work with people that were not necessarily Republican. They weren't necessarily, you know, part of part of that particular political party, but you were able to get together with them and figure out a compromise and figure out a way to reach across the aisle and, and make things work. That, I believe, takes a tremendous amount of courage, especially nowadays. And it was something that impressed me about you. Talk about that. What was it that what was it that that, for lack of a better term, inspired you 
to reach across the aisle and become somebody who solves problems? It's a good question. When I got on the school board, I and let me preface this with okay. the people that I worked with on the school board, I I'm thankful that each one of them was there. Right. They came with a lot of experience, a lot of knowledge. All of them were, were genuinely good human beings. Yeah. But I thought mistakes were being made yeah. in some, some cases. And in the first round of negotiations with the teachers, I noted I, I knew what I was hearing. And the way that it works is, you know, the school board is briefed by the administration on how negotiations are going. And the elected officials aren't supposed to meet with the bargaining units during bargaining. Okay. They come to the Why school is that? board. Because school board members or the elected official is not a bargaining member. Okay. So during negotiations, you shouldn't reach, you shouldn't be communicating as to not give the sense that you are negotiating outside of the proper channels. Gotcha. Okay. So you're not meddling, basically. You're Correct. not. Okay. Okay. I gotcha. But what was happening was I'm sitting there in the school board meetings. I know what the administration's telling me. But what they're saying is it's not polar adding opposite. up. It's, it's polar opposite. It's not adding up. And so I broke the mold on that one. And I went to one of the high schools during negotiations, sat down with members of the teachers' union, and I didn't say anything. I just said, I can listen. I can't respond. They, they didn't ask me for anything. They didn't tell me to vote a certain way. They gave me a bunch of information that had not previously been disclosed to me. Okay, so the administration that that was that was that was reporting to you was not telling you what the teachers were telling you. This was a this was a whole different. The information different was take. far different. Okay, it's far different, and at the same time, these people are angry in the school board meetings, and they're saying we're writing you guys emails, and you're not responding. You're not you're not responding to us. I hate that. The standard the standard was if the school board received an email, the board president would respond. Okay. I'm totally cool with that. Okay. But if he's not responding, that makes me look bad. Makes so, everybody look bad. And I realized the culture very much was the school board was very isolated from everyday staff, okay. regular staff. So I started responding to all the emails and just talking to people. And eventually... What happened was I started forming these relationships, these working relationships with people who I normally wouldn't have worked them out with. I, I'm i not a fan of public employee unions. I okay. do think unions serve a purpose and are necessary. I would never advocate to remove unions entirely. Public employee unions, I think, is a tricky relationship that oftentimes doesn't have the public's best interest in mind. Okay. But with that being said... They're the bargaining partners. Right. You have to work with them. Yeah. And to sit there isolated with your arms folded and say, I'm not going to listen to you, isn't the way I was willing to operate. I have standards that can't be moved, right? Take something like the Second Amendment. Okay. I have no compromise. Um, there is no middle ground to me. But on other things... You've, you've got to be willing to take a step towards the middle sometimes yeah. to reach a consensus. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, as long as you're protecting people's rights and property and liberty, you got to work towards the middle. You know, I, 
I find this fascinating, and 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 I I had shared this with you before that I love people's stories. I ha- hearing about and knowing about your background, and then having you come because you really didn't have a background necessarily. I mean, I know Kelsey's a, a, an instructor and all that, right? So she's in the system, so to speak, right? But you really didn't have you yourself a background in education. You come on the school board and you're like, wait a minute, this is <laughs> this is crazy, right? And it almost so you're so here's the way I see it. And you tell me if I'm wrong. You're an outsider that comes in with a certain amount of sta- standards and you have you have certain things that you think make sense, and some of this just didn't make any sense. It's like and and, I'll, and it's, I think this is kind of the issue that a lot of people have with government. For years and years and years and years and years, it's always been done this way, this way, this way, this way. But it's morphed into this sort of almost separation from what the citizen needs versus what the government thinks the citizen needs. You know, right? There's that chasm. And here you are going, wait a minute. Wait a minute. We need to wake up here. That's what I think is so unbelievably refreshing about you is you're not, you don't have, how do I say this? You were the new kid on the block, but you were willing to say something. You were willing to stand up for what you believed was right. It's why I enjoyed campaigning for you, by the way. Um, but it, but you, were willing to, you were willing to stand up for what was right, and people paid attention. There were people from, the other, from other parties, other political parties, that encouraged you to run for mayor, right? Oh, I don't... Well, yes. Yeah. Yes. Members of the community who aren't necessarily Republicans definitely supported me. That's saying something, right? That you were willing to come in with sort of this outsider, fresh perspective. And, by the way, you had the courage. This is a big deal. You had the courage to actually say something. You had the courage to actually stand up for what you believed was right. That's a big deal, Dane. That's bigger than I think you even realize. In today's political structure and today's political landscape, that's a big deal. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I think you're totally right in saying that it's morphed into something different. Well, it took years, right? It took it took people complying. Because what happens is people comply, they comply, they comply, they comply. And it morphs into something that we don't even recognize anymore. There are people that look at our government now, and, and I'm not I'm not talking about any particular. I'm talking about every, all of government, right? Local, you know, federal, regional, county, whatever. They look at government and they don't recognize it. They don't recognize what's happening. And in fact, I'm going to send you a link to something I I I was I had the privilege of watching this morning, and it really is an indictment of government, but it's an indictment of government in terms of like commercial interests and that kind of thing and how and how sort of by this comp complying every day or complying over the years it's turned into something that people don't recognize right because government's supposed to be there to represent the citizen and it's turned into now they're there to represent the special interests and if you don't think so just watch them yeah right it's crazy it is but i just think i think that's so it's so refreshing for somebody like me to hear that some, that you were willing to come in as an outsider and stand up for what you believed was right, and I truly believe that's part of why you won your your campaign for mayor. 
you know, the biggest thing for the school board is I, I sort of became, and kind of like I, I do now, I'm the middleman, right? Yeah. Um, if there's a problem somebody feels like isn't getting addressed and it ends up in my lap, I just send it to the person who I know will take care of it. Yeah. Same thing on the school board. I think well, what happened was there was a history of staff, you know, teachers and classified employees in general feeling like their voice wasn't heard. And all it took was just sitting down with them and listening yeah. and then bringing whatever I thought was pertinent to the superintendent's intention and just saying, hey, these are, these are some of the things we should probably start addressing. I just think that takes a tremendous amount of courage, and that's very a very cool thing. It's a very big part of your story, I think. And I think the one of the biggest things that separated me from the other four, you know, we were all we're all Republicans on that school board, right? Yeah. The thing that separated me towards the end was I felt like there was an imbalance. There's all this talk about teacher pay and how much money we put into the schools. I'm not here to debate all of that, but there is an imbalance, okay? Yeah. When you have a brand new teacher, and I, I get it, you're brand new, and you're offered whatever it is, $46,000, $48,000 a year to start, and we go to negotiations and the teachers negotiate for 5%, that teacher's not not getting a raise, you know what right. I mean? 5% of 48 is nothing. But if you're making $250,000 and you get 5%, that's a pretty good bonus. That's not bad. And I have a problem with that. Yeah. And towards the end there, I think the last two last two cycles, I voted against any pay increase for the administration because there was an imbalance. There's this history. And I think, I think I'm learning that this is more common than not, where you have whatever the first round of negotiations is with, which whatever union. So let's say it's the teachers, right? But you still have the classified employee union, the management union, well, the teachers go in and bargain, and they settle for 10%. Everybody else gets 10% too. So when you take and you add 10%. That's interesting. When you add so 10, the other unions, so the other, really? It, it's called a Me Too clause. Oh, I but it's love not, it. not. It's not necessarily guaranteed, but for the high school district, that's what happens all Just the time. Just follow along. And what I tried to explain to them was, look, you. I know you say this is... This is equal. It's equity, right. right? Because everybody's getting five percent. It sounds the same, but when you add five percent to a fifty thousand dollars schedule or salary, and then you add it to a two hundred and fifty thousand, this gap will get bigger and bigger and, and it bigger just keeps getting every bigger. year. Yeah, and I have a problem with that. Yeah, um, and not just there; it's everywhere. If you, I mean, if you look at my most recent social media post, it's all about um, the executive salaries at the Water Authority, at Sandag. I read it. Um, I read it. And, it. and it makes a lot of sense that that's getting to a point to where it's completely unreasonable. Like, it doesn't it doesn't jive with reality. That's one of the things that teachers were pointing out that was falling on deaf ears, was there's an imbalance here. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that's still with me this day. That's crazy. Okay, so you're on the school board... You reach across the aisle, you figure out ways to solve problems, right? Almost resolution conflict on steroids kind of thing, right? Yeah. Or conflict resolution, pardon me, on steroids. So then, how, how so I know I know there were people from across the aisle that, that encouraged you to run for, for mayor. What, what, what ultimately made the decision, made you make the decision to run? In the beginning, there was nobody asking me, towards the beginning. What really happened was 
my 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 campaign manager ran my re-election campaign for school board, and shortly after that, it was like we were we were talking about where I would go next, what right. what I wanted to do next, and this this was an opportunity. What made more sense to me was to run for city council, okay, and sort of work my way up. But we're what are we uh, a little over a year out from the election, and there's no talk from anybody about running. Hmm. It's silent, and so I just started calling people. I called. Joe Garcia, who was on the city council, called Sam Abed, the previous mayor, um, and a few others. Anybody who I thought might run, I called twice and said, I'm not hearing anything. Are you going to run? And everybody said no. And so, so Sam said no. Joe said no. Okay. And so it was like, okay, finally a prominent figure in San Diego County said, if nobody else does it, will you do it? I said, if nobody else does, I will. Okay. And it didn't look like anybody was. So we put together this announcement. We sent it out and uh, kind of a, just to test the waters. And in a week, we raised ten dollars or $12,000. So it's like, okay. So there was interest there. Maybe there's something there. Okay. Um, but, man, it was a battle. Okay. It was a battle. Okay. Uh, shortly after that, I did get a call from Sam Abed saying, you know, I he was angry. I, I spent $20,000 to do a poll, and then you announced... So we need to meet, and he sits me down with uh, uh, some of the more well-known Republican figures in town. They basically said, you know, you're, you're going to step aside, and Sam is now going to run. And I was like, okay, well, I asked Sam, you know, you're, you're the only person who's ever lost an election to Paul McNamara. Mm-hmm. What are you going to do differently this time? And he, he said nothing. And that didn't work for me. That's interesting, because I actually campaigned for Sam. I know him really well. He said he wouldn't do anything different. He would hammer conservative principles. And it's like, okay, that's fine. I don't think that's a winning strategy for this city. So I'm going to stay in the race. And what these individuals said at the time was the most important thing for all of us in this room right now is that we agree to support whoever the Republican Party endorses. And I said, I, j- I just want to make sure we're on the same page here. Sam, if you get the endorsement, I support you. What if I get it? And he laughed in my face and said, that will never happen. Okay, that doesn't sound like Sam. And wow. the next day he sent out an announcement, and two days later he dropped out. Oh, my God. And I, I haven't spoken to him since then. Um, and some of the members of that group I met with decided uh, it was better to donate thousands of dollars to Paul McNamara than me win. Oh my goodness. It was, and that's just one example. This was an uphill battle for uh, over a year. Oh my gosh. It was insane. Um, shortly after that, you know, it's like, I realized too, I'm, I was in the process of buying that first hardwood flooring company I worked for. Okay. And at the same time, I'm running for mayor, and it's like, you know, December, 11 months away from the election, and it's like, I I have to make a decision. I'm either going to buy this business, or I'm going to run for mayor. One of the two, yeah. And so, I, some red flags came up with some of the, the, the business side of things, and I just basically didn't work for a year and focused on the campaign. Wow. Wow. But That's it was uphill. Crazy. It was uphill, you know. Um, I... I don't blame people for 
not wanting to support me right away. Nobody knew who I was. You know, I'm at the time I was 32, and it, I think the the impression was I'm just the son-in-law of a council member looking for clout, and I I totally understand that. Uh, but I think now people have learned to take me somewhat serious, anyways. Well, I you know I, I didn't know about any of this. I um, was incredibly busy and focused on other things, and I don't I'm not a big party politics guy. I'm just right what I try to do is I try to I try to get involved when I can and I haven't you know full disclosure I haven't been that involved in every in every campaign um, but I but I try to get involved I try to help when I can where where it's needed right and I called uh, the Republican Party I and I think I'd share this with you. I had the RSV stuff that 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 was oh, going that's, around. Oh, yeah, time. you had that at the time. And I was just me. I was just trying to get over it, and you know I still had coughing fits and all that kind of thing, and I didn't want to be around anybody, so I didn't want to like be in a call center or any that kind of thing. But I'm pretty good on the phone. I'm pretty good with people, and I have enjoyed I've enjoyed helping. You know, right? Trying to to give back, trying to help in however I can. Called the Republican Party. They put me together with Joe. I got together with Joe. Um, Joe said, you know, I'm good. Dane needs help. I'm like, well, let's talk to Dane, right? And then Joe called you, and then you you reached out to me, which was cool. And and I in the meantime, I researched you, and I thought, you know, this is somebody I can campaign for. This is, I love your story. And I, and I you know, I'm, I'm big on people... Like I said, picking yourself up by the bootstraps and just and just you know figuring it out, right? You know, and and thriving when you've come through all the stuff that you've gone through, and so and so you know you and I talked, we connected. I you know I probably wasn't in the best health. I was at the very end of this thing, but I wanted to help and I wanted to be a part of helping you, right? And. Um, and man, I had a lot of fun. I had, I, I mean, there were some people that were, you know, nor, understandably, there were some people that were were the way people are. But man, there were some people that I got on the phone with, and they're like, "Okay, so I don't know anything about him, <laughs> right?" No, I'm not joking. Yeah, no, they're, I know. They're like, they're like, I don't know anything about him, and I'm like, "They're like, who's that?" And I'm so then I'm right, and so I'm basically spent the vast majority of my time educating them, right? And I got to where I was. I probably left. I don't know how many hundreds of voicemails I left, but I always left your website address because I knew, you know, people. You were new to the you were new to the to the games or the circle, so to speak, right? And and people, the general public, you know, re- legitimately didn't really know who you were. I did talk to a few people that had already voted for you, so that was cool, right? Um, but I was, you know, I was calling the number the the list that you gave me, and I mean, I talked to one guy that had that had moved out of California over 20 years ago and was still getting phone calls, right? Like he was still a member <laughs> of the Republican Party, right? And, and he said, he goes, he goes, let me tell you something. He goes, there's, there's no in-person voting in Washington State where I am now. And he said, and California keeps trying to collect taxes from me. And I haven't been in California for 20 years, Mike. He said, there's something broken in California. Yeah. I mean, it was, right? So they were interesting conversations, but it was a lot of fun. I had a great time. I had a great time doing what I could to campaign for you, and and I got a chance to meet a bunch of really cool people, uh, which I always do, you know. 
Um, but I was so incredibly pumped when you won. I mean, it was really, it was really a very cool thing. And it was I'm, a wild night. And I'm very, very happy for you. So we're now, we're now a, so we're now a year, a year into this. Just about. Just you about know, about I, I really right. wasn't sworn in until mid December. Yeah. So, so I was we're, there. We're approaching a year. I was there, and that was that was an interesting that was an interesting deal, um, in that everybody and their brother had something to say about it, and most of them were the opposition. And it was, <laughs> you know, where people were going to get up and, and I thought get up and congratulate you. They were running videos. That that group. That was crazy. That group showed up to every city council meeting for the first couple of months. Yeah, they've stopped coming, um, and I actually reached out to them. Yeah. afterwards. That does not surprise me. And they didn't want to meet. They they. They're I not think, about solving the problem. They're about complaining. I, I, At I, least that's the impression I get. I think that they're just misguided young men and women who yeah. probably are lacking a sense of purpose. Yeah. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm sure I'll see them back at some point. But, yeah, that that was kind of strange. There were people but, that showed up to speak that had pointy ears on yeah. and all this crazy stuff. I mean, yeah, it was interesting. Anyway, so um, so you're, you're almost a year in. What's your experience been? I would say... Mostly positive by far. Uh, it's been interesting getting to know the people here at City Hall, and I, I try not to. I try not to denigrate or degrade the previous guy, but I think that the the actual the you know we're the policymakers. We set the vision for the city. And I can't help but wonder who's been at the helm for the last four years because things are all over the place. And it's hard, it's been difficult to try to pull in the reins and take focus on the things that actually matter. Other than that, though, it has been great. You know, immediately started the homelessness subcommittee. And uh, today, I'm, I'm speaking somewhere at noon, and that's going to be the first spot I announce three major policies that are coming out of that committee. Okay. And in the next couple of weeks, you're going to see an actual plan to address homelessness, an actual plan to remove a number of bodies from the sidewalks over the next year. Wow. Um, which we don't have. We. When I say I wonder who's been at the helm, when I came into this office, there was not a sticky note, there was not a memo, there was nothing. Not nothing. There wasn't anywhere... I had no idea where he left off on anything. Wow. Um, no contacts. Just sort of, here you go, jump in. But now, like I said, you're going to start to see some real progress. Yeah. Very, very soon. That doesn't surprise me knowing you. Go ahead. No, this homelessness thing, it's going to be good. That you know, That's the number one thing I ran on. I, I do find it kind of comical when people... Rightfully frustrated, reach out to me asking me why I haven't done anything yet. You've been there for nine months. You haven't done anything. Government moves at a snail's pace with everything. Yeah. But man, I think once we make these announcements, people are going to be satisfied. You know, we're considering, um, the council will be considering an encampment ban, okay. kind of like what you saw out of the city of San Diego. Um, an RV parking ordinance that's basically going to remove all the RVs parked on public land. And then, um, the third one is the, 
it's going to change the way we regulate service providers in the area. Okay. And it's going to allow us to collect a bunch of data that's not necessarily being collected right now. Okay. That, you know, get the policy in first and then enforcement. Well, enforcement, in order to enforce an encampment ban, legally you have to provide people beds to go to. Right. Um, I could build a shelter right now with county funds, and that's kind of what people have been doing. The problem with that is you then become a county resource, right. meaning any city can send their homeless people here. Right. I'm not willing to do that. Um, so you become a magnet, basically. But we are going to build a shelter. We're going to self-fund it, and it's going to be reserved exclusively for this city. Um, it'll be the enforcement mechanism to an encampment ban. Okay. Cool. I knew you'd come up with a good solution. Yeah, it, uh, it's going to take time still, but I promise the ball is rolling and it's moving quickly. Yeah. Um, but, you know, besides that, everybody wants to know what's going on with the budget. Okay. We'll have more of an update next month on that. We're getting ready to have the second half of our workshop with the council and, and the city manager on, on possible funding opportunities, but I don't think things are as bleak as we were previously told. Okay. So just just for the record, we're recording this September of 2023. So we're in we're in September of 2023. Next month will be October 2023. We'll have more of an update on the budget, that kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. I just wanted everybody to know cuz there'll be people that will listen to this, you know, yeah, years from now kind of thing. So um, so so the homeless thing it sounds like you've got a, you've got a handle on and it was a big part of your of your platform. And, you know, it's, it makes you unique. There are not many people that are, form, that are formerly homeless that run for mayor of any city, regard, you know, regardless, yeah. let alone Escondido, right? And homelessness is an issue. It really is. It's, it's an issue all over California, all over San Diego County, specifically all over, you know, Escondido, too. The thing is, there are other things happening with the city is there anything else that you're working on that you'd like to talk about? So good question. What else is going on? Um, here's a question. Why do people come to Escondido who don't live here? Good question. So if somebody's getting ready to plan a vacation, they're coming to San Diego, and you want them to go to, like, what, what, do, you, what do you tell them? Why well, are I, we, what do I tell them about Escondido? What makes us a destination? Okay, so that's a great question. I, my biggest thing, and I don't know, you don't probably know a lot about my background, but I was on the board of, of directors for four years for American Heritage Charter School. Yeah, I knew that. Um, and I'm a big Coach Snyder fan. I'm a big fan of theirs. I'm actually the voice of their football team. Like, we just had a, a home game last week, and I was the announcer. I'm the guy up in the press box with the microphone doing the play-by-play. Um, so I'm, I'm heavily involved in that in that organization and they are um, I believe a, a huge magnet for for Escondido and one of the things that I shared with coach Schneider the other day when we interviewed him for the podcast was I actually have had families that have been looking and I've been in real estate for 31 plus years right we owned uh, the Keller Williams office here in Escondido for 18 years it was one of the largest real estate offices in North America and it was a great, it was a, a lot of fun. I had a great time. I enjoyed every minute of it. The thing about it was, we dealt with a lot of people that were looking at Poway School, Unified School District. They were looking at these different school districts, San Diego. They were looking at these different school districts that have higher rankings than Escondido does. 
The thing about it is, if you take American Heritage Charter School rankings, they are some of the best in the county, regardless. Okay. So for me, the conversation that I had a lot of times with people about moving to Escondido was, it's a great place to raise a family, and it's a great place to raise a family mostly because of the education, okay? Um, and so that was, that was what I would tell them in terms, of, and a lot of times I would sit with them and, and ask them, what's most important to you, right? What do you like to do? Like somebody will tell me they like to fish. Well, we've got, we've got a lot of opportunity. Lake Dixon's a big deal, right? It's a hotbed for fishing, right? Um, you know, Lake Hodges, that kind of thing. So, um, you know, it just depends upon what it is that they're interested in doing. If they like to spend time in the desert, if they like their toys, that kind of thing, they can get more here. Everything for me is real estate minded, but they get more here for their dollar, right? Where you might not necessarily be able to afford a place in Poway where you've got room for your toys, you, you can buy a place here where you've got room for your toys. That kind of thing. No doubt. And I couldn't agree more with that. My One of my main focuses is why why would young, educated families want to move to Escondido? Um, what makes us a destination? You know, we have, the, we have the wild animal park. We have the mall. We have the arts community. We have the Center for the Arts. We have a downtown. Um, there are so many pieces of the puzzle already in place, right? And then that. we have this rich Native American culture surrounding us mm -hmm. rich hispanic culture how do we how do we put all the pieces of the puzzle together and make us really the 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 spotlight of north county yeah. and that's what i'm focused on that's cool that's cool man yeah i love it anything else uh you know that's those are the big ones yeah they are so anything that's coming up, anything you're working on for the future um, that we can look forward to? That there are. I I can't say exactly what yet. That's okay. That's okay. But there's I a like, couple of things I like, coming. The, I like the look on your face. Yeah. <laughs> so how about this? How about if we agree that we'll get together when those things come, when we can talk about it? Sounds good. Is that cool? We'll yeah. do a follow-up. Okay? All right. Thank you for your time. Sure. I appreciate you doing this. I know, I know for a fact, with every fiber of my being, that your story is going to inspire and motivate people. And I really, really could not thank you more for, for being on the Michael Lynn Experience. Yeah, thank you for having me. I thank appreciate you, it. I appreciate you. We hope you enjoyed another episode of the Mike Litton Experience. If you did, do us a favor, smash that subscribe button, tell your friends, family, and coworkers about our program, and wherever you get your podcasts, please leave us a rating. It helps us to connect with quality people just like you. And that's a wrap. Another episode of the Mike Litton Experience in the books. Reach out to Mike on Instagram at Litton Realty. Want to meet with Mike? Check out calendly.com slash Rio 760. 